Well, we are in Romans 12, and we are looking for the last time here, verses 3 through 8, and conclude this series on faith-filled service. And we are in this incredible section, and I just want to draw out a few more details as we look at the final two points. These are so encouraging to me to think through these principles because we don't get to talk much about the function of the body of Christ. We don't get to talk much about what it looks like as we're working through various texts. It doesn't come up a lot, but when it does, it's so important for us to stop and recognize how the body operates because we can become confused about how God views a ministry. And what we see here in Romans chapter 12, 3 through 8, is how the body functions, how the various grace gifts operate within the church. And then we have Paul's kind of pastoral warnings that come in the midst of that. So as we look at these grace gifts operating, we also listen to the Apostle Paul and evaluate ourselves to make sure that we're exercising these grace gifts according to God's design. And the first principle we looked at last week was this, that when spiritual gifts are operating properly, they're producing humility, not pride. So that when we exercise our gift, whatever that gift is that God has supplied to us by the measure of faith he has given, verse 3, as we exercise in faith those gifts, there is a proper design. And that proper design produces humility. It doesn't lead to exaltation of self, it leads to humility. And just by implication, I know we we covered that last week, so I don't want to rehash it, but I do want to draw out an implication here that I think is very important for us. As you recognize, Paul's writing to the Romans, and as he's writing to the Romans, he's writing to a local church. And he's saying within the local church, Evaluate yourselves on how you interact with one another. Make sure, as verse 3 says, you are not haughty in mind, that you are not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think of yourself. And so he's talking about the interpersonal interaction that may take place in the body of Christ. We might be tempted by the exercise of our grace gift to view ourselves as more significant or as more important. But I also want to draw out by an implication from this that what this is, is a Christian's view towards another Christian. And the temptation might be that we might view ourselves as a ministry against another ministry. So that one sense you might have, and as we do even in our area, multiple ministries around and multiple expressions of God's grace gifts on display in each of those bodies. The temptation that takes place in the heart of the Christian is, well, my church is better than your church. Why? Well, because I look at these gifts that we have going. Look at the grace gifts of teaching and the gifts of service and the gifts of giving, etc. Therefore, our church must be superior because of all of these grace gifts on display. And I think this principle here in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3 applies even in that context. We are not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think because we recognize God is the source of these things. We didn't build this. We didn't plan it out. I didn't sit in seminary and say, okay, I'm going to target these guys and I'm going to pull them together and we're going to get all these gifts together and I'm going to target these servants and I'm going to target these gifts and I'm going to pull them in and I'm going to recruit them to build this ministry. No, God does that. 
God moves, God directs, God orchestrates. That's why I used to uh, chuckle throughout the years as we were a church plant and the ministry was growing. And there was nothing, again, nothing special, nothing unique about our ministry. We just committed to teaching God's word and to practicing it. And, and then God would, would grab somebody from somewhere in the United States and bring them to Florida and plant them right here and bring them right into the church. And their gifts would immediately be exactly what we needed in that, that season. And I would say to our elders in the church during that time, God is cherry-picking all these other ministries and bringing them here for us. He is building us up and he is strengthening us by that gift which we needed in this season to help us grow and mature. So there's always a sense that whatever the Lord allows and, and however he grows a ministry and whatever degree uh, that he would allow it to prosper uh, in, in spiritual influence, it is all the expression of his mercy and grace. But there is a question that comes out of that. If indeed, then, humility is the realization that God is working in all of these ministries, then shouldn't naturally mean then that we all must naturally just be working together. You know, we should just stop dividing. We should all be working together. And that question came up at one point in our ministry life. I remember it particularly uh, when a ministry had come to our church and they had asked our ministry to, uh, to be engaged in their ministry. And the ministry was the idea that we would go around, preach the gospel through all of these various churches and ministries, and we would preach the gospel, and you would have converts, and then we'd get them all together on one particular day, and we would baptize all of them. So you'd have all of these various ministries who were bringing their converts down, and we would baptize them. What we would do is that we would demonstrate to this community that God is at work, and that he's accomplishing his great purposes. And as this pitch was given to me, the shock came when I said, I can't be a part of that. Why would you not want to be a part of this? This is God's working in all these, all these ways. How is it that you couldn't possibly be a part of this? Are you proud? Are you too good for us? I mean, and I, I obviously I, I walked him through why I couldn't, and I'll tell you in a moment why. But well, let me tell you what I didn't say. I didn't say to them, well, do you know the pastor that I sat under? You know, the guy's taught a few sermons and written a couple of books and is all over the internet and TV. Have you heard? I can't possibly go against his reputation. I didn't say that. I didn't say, do you understand the seminary I came from and the education I have? I didn't say that. Nor did I say to him, do you understand the reputation and what it would mean for me? No. I actually said to this individual this, you don't want me. The reason why you don't want me is because I would expect your ministry to operate the same way I expect our ministry according to the word of God. And I would expect that God lays out a standard and God says, here's what is right. And, and thus, I would expect that your ministry would have to reject those who did not operate according to God's word so that I can't possibly sit next to Apostle Susie as she's preaching the gospel and generating converts and that her converts actually believe in the word of God like we do when we preach the gospel. They're just not the same. I can't preach 
alongside of somebody who is in their practices and in their doctrines undermining the scriptures. I would be confusing the church, so I can't. Of course, that was interpreted as pride. That was interpreted as, as, oh, you think you're better than we are. That was interpreted as that we uh, do not desire. We're too proud to have fellowship with others. And I say, absolutely not. What it is saying is, I believe God speaks, and he has spoken through his word. He's given it to us. And that his word is clear, and he has a standard. And what I do believe is this, is that, Friendship with the world is enmity towards God. And that when one says that they are walking in the ways of God, but they're presenting a message that is contrary to the word of God, they are not presenting God's message. They are presenting the world's message. And James says that's enmity towards God. I can't rebel against God for you. That would be loving man and fearing man more than God. So what I did is directed this individual to go read Ian Murray's book, Evangelicalism Divided, and I said, will you listen to what Murray documented in regards to Billy Graham's ministry and demonstrate for me that your ministry is going to do something different and then maybe we can talk. And then on top of that, I encouraged the individual to be clear with their doctrinal standards because it is God who measures our ministry, not man. It's not man's approval. It's not that we've convinced the whole community that God is at work within us. I don't need to convince anyone else that God is at work. God himself demonstrates that work. And as also, as I thought through that time, I recognized this. It's just kind of the deep-rooted conviction in my own heart thinking about this, that I am not... And I know our ministry is not, our elders are not, willing to fellowship with darkness and call it victory for the light. It isn't that we are uh, called to engage in worldliness and say, look how grace has triumphed. That's what the, not what the gospel has called us for. Actually, what God has done is called us out of darkness into the light. And now we call others out of darkness into the light as well. This is what God has called us to do. And it's not pride to walk in this. It is faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this passage here, as we think about Romans twelve three, no, yeah, there's separations, there's distinctions, those are ministries that divide. It is not us who judge, it's the Lord who judges and verifies. We are simply striving to be faithful to what God has called us to do. And this is what, again, our gifts should produce, humility. We're not exalting ourselves in any sense. And secondly, as we navigated through this, the second lesson we saw was this. Grace gifts are given for the benefit of the whole, not the individual. You've been given a unique gift by God, not for yourself and your own exaltation, but for the benefit of the whole body, for the service of the body. For everyone else to prosper and benefit from that grace gift given. And we operate for others in our midst, and there is great joy in that. I rejoice in the various gifts around the body. It makes my life so easy. It blesses me in so many different ways. I think about the gift of administration. I do not like, I actually think I used the word despise last hour. I'll temper it a little bit this hour. I say I do not like the gift of administration, not because 
I don't like it itself. I love order. I love, I love schedule. I love to know where I need to be. I just don't pay attention to any of those things. I am more focused on the task at hand and teaching and understanding. And then I have to be reminded, your schedule says you need to be here, and this is important. So again, in the midst of that, I thrive on those who have administration, who can direct and move, and I rejoice in it. It's just not my strong suit. So in the midst of that, I, I rejoice as God has given gifts to people and they operate in the body because it benefits the whole. And now for a moment, I thought just by implication of this, uh, how the body benefits itself for the use of their gifts, I thought I would for a moment boast in you. Because I don't get to do this very often. I certainly haven't done it enough uh, in our own pulpit, but I, I don't get the privilege of doing it uh, when I go off and see my friends. So I go to differing ministries at different conferences. I see my friends that I went to school with, and we talk, and we start sharing with one another what's going on in ministry, and invariably, they start talking about the difficulties they're facing. They're talking about the elder conflict they have, and they're talking about these people in the ministry who are hostile to what they're teaching, and I, I'm, I struggle you know, as they're trying to get people to get active in the ministry, I struggle because I, I just don't want to share with them the many expressions of God's grace and favor in our ministry. I must feel like, in a sense, a proud father whose son just broke a, a record in some sporting event, and then I'm talking to another father whose son has a broken leg. It's like, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to share with you the joy that God has accomplished, but... He is doing many things, and so I think it's appropriate at this moment to talk about God's grace in our midst. I was thinking about like a year and a half ago when the hurricane came through here just before a conference we were about to have, and as that hurricane came, it just disrupted everything around. But I rejoice in the response of the body. As people started getting on the phones and calling and checking in on everyone, how are you doing? And as the body started to drive out and visit those they could not get in contact with and as the body started to gather together and set up little rescue crews as the floodwaters were coming in people were getting on boats that they were going out to check on homes to make sure that everyone was safe and getting out then on top of that the generous gifts that the body had gave to meet one another's needs and then the administrative teams that got together and evaluated all those needs and, and carried through people through the process. I saw people helping one another with, with the FEMA needs and everything. And it was just amazing to see the body. And I can tell you, I did not command any of it. No one asked for my permission to do any of it. The body just responded and naturally in love towards one another. And for up to a year and a half, we have been working through caring for everyone and getting everybody whole, and we're about to announce in our church business meeting that has come to an end. The fact that our facilities here was the last project in all of that, and we have cared for our facility needs at the very end. It's amazing, the demonstration of God's mercy and kindness and the demonstration of love towards one another generously. And I look at that and say, that is a sign of God's love richly poured out among his people. That no one would say to me, they'd say, well, your groups, you're proud there, you're arrogant, you're cold, you're indifferent. It's like, I don't know who you're talking about because you're not talking about Saving Grace Bible Church. 
You're not talking about the sacrificial servants who care for one another diligently, pray for one another, seek to counsel and encourage one another uh, tirelessly. It's amazing to see. So you fulfilled even principle two here that that spiritual gift given is not for yourself, it is given for the benefit of others. Now we get to look finally in our few minutes we have left is the last two gifts on display. The, second, the third principle, when we think about the principles of how we're to properly view these grace gifts given, the third principle is this. We should expect a diversity of gifts exercised in the body in a complementary way. We should expect that there are diverse gifts operating in harmony. Or to say it differently, we expect in the body of Christ a unified and a harmonious exercising of diverse gifts. We're all different. Notice again at the end of verse 5 and into verse 6, Paul says, So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. We are many diverse. There are a lot of us, but we are in one body together, and each of us are different in the sense that we differ according to the grace given to us. Even when we have similar gifts, we have distinctions within us according to God's purpose and design. There is diversity in these gifts. There is a diverse process, diverse exercising and dispensing of these gifts, and yet there's a harmony that operates among us. This is by God's design. The point is, we're not trying to make everyone look the same. We're not coming along to say, well, we have strong teachers here, so everybody who comes out of this church needs to be exhorters or needs to be teachers. Or we have strong service gifts here, so everybody who comes out of this church has to be service-oriented. No, there is diversity. There is a, a demonstration of the uniqueness of God's outpouring of grace to everybody. And as that unique grace is poured out, it operates in a perfect harmony and unity. We are, as he says, members one of another, united to one another in a unified force. But we also recognize our differences according to God's design and according to the grace that he has given to us. This is by God's purpose to be to distinguish uh, our gifts, but all with an intended purpose, as He described in Ephesians four and verse sixteen. The intended purpose is to build up one another in love. This is God's objective. What is God doing when He brings all the various gifts together into one place and He uses them? It is to build up and to edify. That is God's purpose. This is important for us to recognize because when we operate in harmony, what we are operating in a sense is how is it that your gift is being used to build up and to strengthen this body? I'm not trying to make someone look like me, operate like me, do what I do. I'm trying to see everyone use their unique gifts in God's intended way to build up everyone else. I know there's distinctions in diversity. But it will produce harmony and a unity as we rejoice in the differences. That's the third principle. And now we'll, in the bulk of our time, spend our time in this last principle in verses 6 through 8. 
and it's this, that each gift must function according to its design. Each gift must function according to its design. So we don't use our gifts to edify, uh, to become proud. We don't use our gifts for our own personal advantage, but for others. We don't use our gifts forcing everyone to look like us, but we accept the harmon- or we accept the diversity and we seek to operate in a harmonious way amongst that diversity. And then this last principle, there, are, there is an appropriate design to every one of these gifts. Meaning they must function according to God's purposes. And now what Paul does here, and this is some challenge for us here, and this is where I'm going to ask you to think a little bit, because there are some textual challenges here in verses 6 through 8. And the challenge comes in this very first statement at the end of verse 6. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. That is the challenge. You say, well, what's the challenge with that? Well, first of all, the word his is not in there. It's not in the original. But let me show you. There's a a few translations. You might have, obviously the New American Standard translated as his faith. You might have the ESV, and the ESV translates it like this. In proportion to our faith. And the Net Bible translates it like this, in proportion to his faith, and the NIV translates it according to this, in accordance with your faith. So you have his faith, our faith, your faith. That is, again, how many translations end up translating it. The King James translates it like this, to the proportion of faith. It takes a more neutral position. It isn't his faith, just neutrally. And the LSB translates it like this, in agreement with the faith. So it's either his faith, your faith, our faith. It's either just faith or the faith. You say, well, which one of these is it and why and what in the world are we talking about? That's why you have me here to explain that to you. So I will do that. So here are the categories. The major translations translate it with what is called a, an attributive genitive. You say, what? don't worry, there's no test. So, but it's an attributive genitive is the way they're translating it. His faith, our faith, his faith, your faith. It's attributing. And what it's saying is, by your faith or the measure of your faith or even the quality of your faith, you then exercise this grace gift. That's the attributive genitive. You must have enough faith to prophesy. You must have enough faith to exhort or to teach or any one of the following gifts that come in order there. So the idea is by the increasing or exercising of some quality of faith that you possess, you then exercise that grace gift. That's the intent that that view is teaching. On the other hand... The objective genitive says this. You exercise that gift against the comparison of an object of faith or the standard of faith. The idea is that you prophesy, it must, you must prophesy according to the apostles' teaching, according to sound doctrine, according to the teaching passed on to us from the apostles. This is the object, the objective faith. 
We must operate according to the standard. So then which one is it? Is it objective? Is it attributive? Or no one cares and we just move on? Well, I think the proper answer here is that this is referring to an objective faith. Why? First of all, because there is no subject in this text. Why do you have in the various translations, New American, ESV, Net, NIV, the differing translation of his, our, your? Well, because you, they have to supply a subject that's not there in the text. They have to supply an attributive force. They have to add it because it's not there. They have to supply it. So the natural and normal use of this text would be referencing a standard, a doctrine. In fact, that is the phrase in verse 6. According to the proportion of faith, literally, it is according to the analogy of the faith. That's where we get the idea, the analogy of faith is from this very verse. It's only used one time, this phrase, and it's right here in Romans twelve six. And what he is saying here is there is a standard of doctrine. There is a standard of teaching by which everything else is measured against. I think that's the emphasis that Paul is demonstrating here. And some have pointed out there is a, there's also an article before the word faith in the original in, in Romans 12.6. It literally reads according to uh, the analogy, or it says the analogy of the faith, literally in the Greek text. And some have pointed out that that article actually emphasizes an objective faith, but there are actually many cases where that's not the case. So it's not a strong conclusion. The point is this, when you and I exercise our gifts, we are to exercise our gifts according to the New Testament prescription, according to what God has designed in the New Testament. And I think this is natural because just think about the other side. Let's assume for a moment that I took the attributive force here, and again, if I was a heretic, I definitely would take the attributive force for this reason. Because the gift of prophecy is the gift of speaking new revelation. Revelation that has not yet been revealed. That's the gift of prophecy. And if I had the gift of prophecy, you can't hold me to the word of God because I'm giving you new revelation that has not yet been revealed. And then if you came to me and said, you're giving me new revelation that has not yet been revealed, I would just say back to you, if I was the heretic, yeah. Because I have really big faith. Big enough faith to give you a whole new explanation as to what God is saying. That would be the attributive force. And I would say that was dangerous with no New Testament explanation how to operate. And you couldn't actually hold any false teacher to account. Because all he could argue is, I have big enough faith to teach this new prophetic message. That's the attributive force. Objective force, everything that anybody says, any teacher comes along, any prophet, any minister of the gospel, any preacher must teach according to the apostles' doctrine. And by the way, that's exactly what 1 John 4 says. So why do I take the genitive force, the, uh, the genitive as an object of genitive? Because it holds everyone accountable to what? God has revealed. So that's a side note. You can hold on to it. But now this is why you should hold on to my interpretation here, because now let's explain what Paul is saying. Paul is saying this, then, 
There is an appropriate way to exercise your gift. You can't just use your gift any way you want to use it. You are held accountable to God's standard. You are held accountable to his message. In fact, you must operate it according to God's design, the objective force here. So, if prophecy, that is, if you come with new revelation, something that had not been known, and now you're making it known, it must stand up against the sound doctrine. It must represent sound teaching. The word prophecy in this word has been batted around by many Bedag describes it as this, to proclaim an inspired revelation, to tell about something that is hidden from view, to foretell something that lies in the future. And the definitive definition is by our own Pastor Eric, who says this, God's revealing something directly to a person who then delivers that same revelation to others. That is the gift of prophecy, to make known what had previously not been made known. This was given to the church in this early period of time. This is what, what uh, Jonathan Edwards would call an extraordinary gift. It was given in an extraordinary time with an extraordinary purpose to help the church as it was birthed and brought into the world and as the church was waiting for the canon to come, waiting for all the scriptures to be revealed during that time, God would supply to the church those who would prophesy and make the truth known so the church would be edified and built up. This is a gift which 1 Corinthians 12 describes as having ceased as the perfect came and completed it. This is the gift in which again ended in that first part of the church and now we move on to the ordinary gifts. The point is as Paul is writing and certainly he's writing in a period of time where these extraordinary gifts the gifts of prophecy and special revelation given to individuals would be given they were held accountable. You must teach according to sound doctrine. Nobody could say in the spirit that Jesus is accursed. No prophet could come along and condemn uh, Christ and teach contrary to the scriptures and say it's of God because they had some great faith. No, they are held to the measure and standard. Now, Paul continues in verse 7 and following, and he gives a few more gifts, six more gifts that he gives. Total of seven here. And again, this is not an exhaustive list of all the gifts that are in the New Testament or all the gifts operating in the body of Christ, but these are kind of examples for us. The next one, verse 7 says, if service in his serving. And I think, again, from, from prophecy, serving, teaching, and exhortation, all four of these are measured by that first standard. It must be according to the faith. The object of faith. This word service, what is it? It's the word we get ministry from. Turn back to chapter 11 and verse 13. Paul uses this same word there. He says, But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles. Notice, I magnify my, literally, service, my ministry. 
What Paul is emphasizing here is the particular role or office that he had been called to as apostle. This is this back here to Romans 12 and verse 6. This is, or verse 7, this is the idea here. It's a, in an official sense, it refers to an official office that one may have. That would be the formal sense of this word. Formally, it is one called to a particular office. And this can be, again, elder or deacon. It can refer to that formal sense. And informally, it would mean any act of ministry or caring for somebody else. So any act of service or care for someone else is this idea. And he says, we are to do this. Whether you are formally called or informally operating, you are to operate in such a way that it is built according to the faith. Whether deacon, apostle, prophet, whether pastor, teacher, evangelist, using the terms of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17 and following, whatever the official office or the informal service of the body, it is to be done in a faith, according to the faith. The next word he uses is the word teaching. It's the next grace gift. The idea teaching here is the idea of instructing or making things plain. Anyone who is able to take complex ideas and make them understandable, to explain God, to teach God's ways, as, as Paul had said to Timothy, the things that you'd heard and received in me, from me, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. One who is teaching, then, is one who is able to make God's truths understandable. He brings explanation. So one, again, we are to teach according to the standard of faith. And one more, in this first grouping, and at the beginning of uh, verse 8, is then exhorting. He who exhorts in his exhortation. We're to operate our gifts Accordingly, in this exhortation is the idea of admonishing. Somebody who admonishes, somebody who urges and pleads, someone who compels the will. And I love these two words side by side, teaching and exhorting, because you have the, dis- the, the distinction between teaching and preaching. Teaching is I'm making something clear and understandable. Exhorting is, I'm not only, or preaching is not only that I'm trying to help you understand, but then I'm actually compelling you to act on that. That's exhortation. Beseech, plead with, desiring to conform you to the image of Christ. The distinction between teaching and preaching is preaching exhorts the will to act according to what is right. We have many teachers who make things clear, but not many preachers who in the clarity of the truth drive someone to act according to God's purposes and design. It's exactly what we're doing here. Back to verse 1. This is how Paul started this. Paul clearly had the gift of uh, exhortation. Verse 1 tells us that, therefore, he says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a living and holy sacrifice. This emphasis here is I am pleading with you. I'm beseeching you. I'm trying to draw you to carefully move and think in this manner and operate in this manner. That is the gift of exhortation. To move and compel and to encourage others to do the things that are right. That was the first gift, first four gifts. 
And again, those first four gifts are operating by the measure of faith. That is to say that somebody may have the gift of exhortation, but he has no right to use that gift of exhortation to compel somebody to operate different than God's standard. Can't come along and say, you know what, you really must wash my car. I'm going to compel you by the use of exhortation to go clean the rims on my car because I really have a dirty car and wish you would do that. No, that would be an improper use of the gift of exhortation. Be self-absorbed and not according to God's design. Exhortation, beseeching, encouraging, exhorting is there to call people to operate according to the measure of faith. Now, these last three are unique because in these last three gifts uh, of grace given, he gives a differing qualifying factor to it. Notice the next one. He who gives with, and it's translated here in the New American, with liberality. In fact, the ESV kind of follows that same word here, emphasizes the idea of a generous or liberal giving. Well, that's not the word here. Actually, the translation is best translated by the King James Version, and it's translated like this. He who gives with simplicity. The idea here in this phrase is one who gives in such a way that there is no restrictions. It's unencumbered. It is simple. Singleness of intent. There's no hidden motive, no hidden agenda. One isn't giving for the intention of building themselves up. They're not giving with the hope that they're going to gain a privileged position or gain the ability to influence ministry in a particular way. This is one who gives in such a way that it is simple giving. It is no pretense. There's no strings attached. There's nothing. It is a free, unqualified gift. That's the idea. So that the proper use of one's gift, in this particular case, the one who is giving, they may give generously, that may be part of it, but more importantly, it's not the, the quantity of the exercise, it's the quality of it, and the quality is it's a free gift. Simple, unrestricted, unencumbered, singleness of tent for the blessing of gospel work, for the accomplishing of God's good purposes, this is how one exercises this gift. And he goes on. He who leads with diligence. The idea of leading here is this is one who manages. One who, who shows leadership. And one who has charge over. First, First Thessalonians 5.12 speaks of one who has charge. First Timothy 5.17 is elders who rule well. So it's an idea of one who manages, rules, or exercises a charge. And he says this, one who has this gift of giving leadership must do it with diligence. Must be operating effectively and diligently. That is to say, something like this, you want spiritual leaders who are self-starters. Not spiritual leaders that you kind of have to remind them, you know, Pastor, it'd be great if you got up today. You know, it is Sunday. You know, the people are waiting for you to come and preach to them. There's a kind of diligent, self-starting effort that strives to accomplish the leadership. I mean, I was thinking about this in, in relationship to a lifeguard. 
I want a lifeguard who is sitting on that station saying, stop running. You probably don't belong in the deep end. You should move to the shallow end. Don't grab your sister and push her head underwater. You know, I want a lifeguard who is sitting up there looking at dangers and calling out those dangers and diligently paying attention to all that is happening around them. Not the lifeguard who is sitting up there on his Nintendo Switch, just distracted from everything else. It is, this is the idea here of diligence. Diligent striving to exercise a leadership so as to protect, so as to build up, so as to edify. There is a leadership. How do I, you're called to lead, then you are called to lead with diligence, not in slack. And then lastly, as a gift to be measured, it says, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. To show mercy with cheerfulness. It's interesting that grace is the giving of unmerited favor. To be gracious is to give to some, somebody something they don't deserve. That's grace. Unmerited favor. Mercy is different. Mercy is withholding what someone rightly deserves. So the idea of mercy is withholding judgment, though they deserve it. And here, Paul emphasizes this, we, one who shows mercy is to show mercy with, and then notice, cheerfulness. You know, it isn't easy to forgive. It isn't easy to show mercy to somebody who has transgressed you. If you've been married for any amount of time, you know this. When your spouse is like, is that is the millionth time you have done that? And I have shown you mercy one million times and I'm going to do it again. This is the million once time that I'm going to show you mercy. But here Paul says, you must show mercy with cheerfulness. It's like one thing, okay, I'll forgive because I know I have to forgive and I'll show mercy and I won't judge, but I'm not going to be happy about this because we, we're inclined to say, okay, I will show you mercy because I'm obligated by God to show you mercy. That's what he's called us to, but I just never want to see you again. I, in fact, I kind of hope you disappear. You know, I just don't want to see you. And yet, that's not what God has called us to. There's the kind of demonstration of mercy that demonstrates the riches of the gospel towards us. We who rebelled against God, we who are hostile to him, we who opposed him, and we opposed him for ages, took his word and twisted it for our own advantages. We were rebellious, self-loving, in many ways that we operated in such a way that we're filled with pride and filled with fear. And yet God was merciful, holding back judgment, not pouring out wrath upon us, disciplining or even directing in our life to draw our attention to our need for repentance. But he was merciful in all of it. So that you and I get to live out the gospel regularly as someone sins against us and judgment can rightly come and fall upon them. We demonstrate mercy and we do it with cheerfulness because we know that God used that mercy to save us and he might just use our mercy to draw their attention to see the love of God and save them. Cheerful. I'm thankful 
Certainly thankful for this, because apart from God's great grace given to me, I would show mercy to nobody else. Mercy, as our culture says, is weakness. Forgiveness is weakness. You must get what's yours, get what's right, get what you deserve. Not in God's design. In God's design, mercy is overlooking transgression and forgiving. And we're doing this cheerfully, rejoicing. And certainly as, as these gifts are operating again, these gifts are, are to operate according to God's design. We don't use mercy for our own advantage point as, as if, okay, I'll show you mercy, but let's talk about what you're going to give me first before I give this to you. Or I'll give, but let's talk about what I get in regards to this if I was to give. Or I will lead, but are you really worth, are you really following now, there's no restrictions that we can place on these gifts. We are to operate with these gifts according to God's purposes and design. So we do it according to the measure of faith. And I think when this happens, it's kind of drawing our thoughts to an end. When all this happens, here's what we're going to see. Like the question would be, how do I know? How do we know that these, our, our view of the grace gifts is correct. Well, here's what it'll do. It's producing humility in you as you are appreciating God's working among everyone around. Is it producing within you a willingness to give of yourself to others for their benefit, knowing that they need that grace gift in their life to make them stronger and better? Because Christians can't grow isolated. We are designed to be together and build up one another. Again, that's Ephesians 4.16. And are you recognizing and rejoicing in all the uniqueness around, not trying to conform one another to look all the same, but rejoicing in the diversity? And then are you operating by God's design, not trying to, to take that gift and make it operate in a different way? Are you operating according to his design. When we are, it will have its desired effect. And that desired effect will be an ever-increasing love for one another. And you say, well, what does that love look like? And I say, come back next week, because that begins our next series. That is, again, verse 9 through verse 21. We see the operation of love on display, as Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy. We will look at a genuine love that is not hypocritical. We'll start that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your work in our midst. You do so much among us, moving us and directing us for your good purposes. You accomplish so many things among us. Now, at times we get, as we are striving and we're putting on uh, these graces and we are operating in your mercy and who are operating by faith, at times we get confused as to think that that originated within us. But it's passages like this that remind us that you are the supplier, you're the giver, you're the one who's uniting us and moving, and, and then we step back and we rejoice. We rejoice in your kindness in our midst. We re rejoice in your outpouring of love. We rejoice in your example so that we can model your example to others. 
And we rejoice as the effects of your work take place among us as you strengthen us and you encourage our hearts and knit our hearts together in love and around the truth so that we grow not only in a greater understanding of the clarity of your word and a greater understanding of your message, that we also grow in the practice of your message, so that in truth proclaimed, in truth practiced, we are conformed into the very image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That produces within us brokenness and humility and dependence, but it also produces joy and peace. So in all of this, we... We are so thankful for your good hand moving and directing. Continue to use your word to shape our hearts and minds and continue to accomplish your good work in our midst so that you would receive all honor. In your name we pray, amen.